All right. Good morning. Start before I even get up here. Um, can you get the Every week it's a game of who's going to get the pulpit. Where did they hide it this time? Degree of difficulty every Sunday. Here we go. All right. How you guys doing? That sounds amazing. Uh, it is so good to be here. Um, my name is Danny Pierce, for those of you who, do, who don't know me already. And uh, it, it hit me when um, every Sunday, whoever preaches, they usually have some sort of, hi, um, you know, John Lux, I'm the director of young adult ministry or something like that. And I'm Mark Buckner, I'm the lead pastor. And I actually don't have a title. Cool. Uh, so just, I'm Danny. Nice to meet you. Yeah. We're just going to go with the one name, just Danny and... And I'll, I'll just become famous off the one name. Like me and, me and Beyonce. We're just so much alike. This is a moment I wish I knew like one Beyonce song. I would sing it for you, but I don't. And it's all right. Um, yeah, that's a good start. Um, so uh, it's, it's good to be here. Um, we're in the Moses series, Lessons in the Life of Moses. Um, and uh, a few weeks back... Um, Wait, or a few weeks, a couple months ago, I guess now, uh, Mark Buckner, our lead pastor, kind of pulled everybody in, uh, not everybody, a few people, and he said, hey, we're going to do this series, let's start dividing up the, uh, the topics, and, uh, and I was given the, the topic of the tabernacle, I know, you're excited, you're like, isn't that the, the, the big tent, right, I'm like, yes, this is what we need, is more sermons on tents, and so, um, it's, I love it, actually, it's going to be great, um, and so we're, we're going to talk about that today, um, but one thing I do want to do, Clark did this last week in his sermon. It's good to understand some of this stuff uh, in, in its broader context. And so the sermon today, it, it's going to be a little different in the sense that uh, we're not going to look at a, a specific text or two. Uh, it's going to be more like a theme. Uh, this is what, what Bible scholars would call uh, biblical theology, which sounds a little funny because shouldn't all theology be biblical, right? Uh, but the idea is instead of... Um, a text, or it's more like a theme that we see throughout Scripture, and you see how it, it's developed. Does that make sense? So we're going to cover like a large part of the Bible. Uh, now, <clears throat> I'm going to preach this on the assumption that most of you in this room, uh, if you were here uh, roughly three and a half years ago, we were on a furlough, that you're not going to remember my sermon then, because this is going to have a lot of overlap. Uh, <laughs> And so, and let's be honest, how many of us in this room can remember sermons from three and a half years ago or three weeks ago or, you know, uh, and so, I mean, look, man, I've spent my whole life in church. I've probably heard 10,000 sermons. I can probably remember like five. So that's really humbling as I'm standing up here. Hopefully you will remember something, if nothing else, the Beyonce reference. Okay. So, um, the tabernacle. Well, before we even get to the tabernacle, uh, we've, we've looked the last couple weeks at the but that was known as the Exodus, God rescuing his people out of Egypt, uh, including the, uh, the parting of the Red Sea and giving the Ten Commandments. Um, but God didn't do that just because he was in a good mood and wanted to help some people out. Uh, and so uh, he had made a promise, I don't know, maybe 800 years before this happened, 1,000 years before this happened, to a man named Abraham. Uh, and he said, I'm going to give you a land, I'm going to give you many descendants, and through you, I'm going to bless the nations of the earth. However, 400 years in slavery, 
uh, not in their land. That is not what God had in mind. And so he rescues them out of Egypt. Uh, But even the call to Abraham, right? I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you descendants. And through you, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. Uh, That didn't come out of nowhere either. Because before Abraham showed up on the scene, uh, sin and wickedness, rejection of God had spread throughout the planet. Uh, If you'll remember way back in Genesis 1, we get a picture of what God's uh, ultimate plan, his intention is. He creates man and woman in his image, and he says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. You guys remember this? This is Genesis 1. Uh, And and yet, because of uh, humanity's sins, and we see it in Adam and Eve in in Genesis chapter 3, but not just there, it continues, uh, this rejection of God. A rejection of his authority, a rejection of his desire for a relationship with humanity. Um, it brings in guilt. It brings in shame. It brings in fear into our, into our world. Um, and because of that, although mankind actually does, uh, they, they are fruitful, they do multiply, but instead of being the, the, those who carry the image of God throughout the planet, what they do is they bring sin and wickedness and evil everywhere they go. And so instead of wiping them out, God chooses Abraham. He says, through you, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. But uh, we, we've got a problem, right, in this 400 years of slavery. And so God is rescuing them because he has promised that through Abraham and through his descendants, blessing would come. And it might seem odd, but the tabernacle is a part of that plan. Uh, it is more than just a tent, okay? Now, the word tabernacle, is anybody familiar with that word? If you, uh, if you grew up in the church, you're, you're probably somewhat fluent in biblish, and so you know the Bible terms. And so tabernacle is one of those terms. Uh, <clears throat> it is a, it's from a fancy Latin word that just means tent. Apparently, tent is not good enough. We need a tabernacle. And so, uh, but it really, it just means tent. It's like a dwelling place, a place that people lived. Um, however, it's not just any old tent, right? Um, it is, uh, it carries a religious and a royal meaning to it. Uh, religious in, in the sense that it's a place of, of sacrifice. It's a place uh, where people are, receive forgiveness. Uh, it's a place of holiness. And, and we'll look into some of those, those details as we go. Uh, but it's also a royal place. Uh, and in a sense, this might sound funny, but it is God's portable palace. It is where he dwells with his people. Now, it, that doesn't mean that, that he's, he's limited to that. And actually, Moses, we're not going to get into all these things, but uh, later in Deuteronomy says, <clears throat> when he's praying, he says, God, look down on us from your heavenly dwelling. Right? In other words, we know that God isn't bound by his home here on earth in the tabernacle. Uh, instead, he, he, he lives, however you understand this, to, <laughs> uh, he lives in heaven, but his manifest presence, he shows up in this day in the tabernacle. Uh, can we get the picture up here of the... Um, this is real fancy, huh? Uh, I stole this. I, I should have stolen like a fancier looking one, but... Um, from, I, I think it's called ebibleteacher.com or something, I can't remember, it was years ago. Um, and so the tabernacle, teacher mode, you ready? Put on your learning hat, you know, just slide it on, uh, metaphorically speaking. Um, the tabernacle uh, has three parts to it, okay? 
There's the courtyard, the holy place, and what's called the most holy place or the holy of holies. Uh, now, I, I want to point something out here. Um, that the courtyard is actually open air. It just is surrounded by, by curtains, basically. Uh, now, anyone could enter the courtyard if they are made holy. And we'll come back to that word holy in a second. Um, so, in other words, you can't just walk in on your own. Uh, but you, you have to offer up some kind of a sacrifice to be made holy to come in. Uh, and so a couple months ago, John Lux preached on sacrifice on, on the Passover sermon. Uh, if you haven't heard it, is it online? Can I assume it's online? Okay, it's online. If not, he'll do it again. Just for you. I volunteered him. Uh, one-on-one. You buy him dinner, he will preach. Okay. So um, I didn't even have to ask. I know that's true. Um, and so... Uh, so it, it, we're not going to go into all the details of the sacrifice. And there really is, by the way, like you, you could do the whole sermon series on the tabernacle, uh, the priesthood and things like that that are so important. We just don't have time. Uh, we have to kind of pick and choose. So open up your New Testament when you get home, read through the book of Hebrews and, and think about that. It's real easy, no problem. Um, so the courtyard, anyone could enter the courtyard if they offer up a sacrifice. Now, this is interesting. Just a little side note, teacher geek stuff, okay? Um, the entrance to the tabernacle always would face the east. Now, that just seems like an interesting little tidbit. Uh, but um, uh, it connects actually to, a, to an earlier part of the big story. When Adam and Eve were ejected from the Garden of Eden, uh, God kicked them out to the east. That's where the entrance was. And he kicked them out of Eden, away from his presence to the east. And he guarded, he put up as a guard to the entrance, uh, cherubim. Does anybody know what cherubim is? It's another biblish word. I don't know what a cherubim really is, let's be honest. It's just some kind of creature thing. We'll find out one day, okay? Um, I could have dressed up like a cherubim with wings, and that would have been rad. Uh, It would have been memorable. You would remember this three and a half years from now. Uh... But anyway, so you, 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 and this is just a little connection to Eden, and we'll point out another one here in a bit. So they were kicked out to the east of Eden, and the, the entrance on the east side was blocked by cherubim. And so now in the, in the tabernacle, at all times when you walked in, the entrance always would face to the east, okay? Um, and so, which way is east? This way is east, right? Yes. Just imagine here. We swear... I, I love this. You don't plan it. The Lord just sets things up for you. We spare no expense here at Antioch Brighton. In coming from the east is St. Tommy of Foxborough, right, <laughs> to offer sacrifice on behalf of his family. Can you guys see him? Can you see him over here? You can just look at, who's this? Chara. Yes, St. Chara of uh, Slovakia, right? Okay. Just pick your favorite Boston saint. Ooh, son puppy. All right, see? We even got Spanish-speaking Spains here. This is great. Okay, so in coming from the east, they offer up sacrifices. I'm going to use up all my time on Boston jokes. This is going to be bad. Um, uh, Offer up sacrifice to be made holy so they could enter the presence of God. But there's another level of holiness in in this tabernacle, and it's called what's called the holy place, in case you weren't sure if holiness was important. The holy place. Now, not just anyone could come into this part. You had to be a priest. And a priest would go in every day, and they would offer up some kind of sacrifice. But only the priest could enter it. Okay? So, I'm not a priest. Out of luck. I can hang out in the courtyard, and that's as close as I can get. But there is one more level 
in what's called here the most holy place, or are you guys familiar with the term the holy of holies? Have you heard that? Uh, this sounds kind of unusual to call it that. That's a very Hebrew, Hebraic way of saying really holy. Right? The Bible does this a lot. The king of kings, right? He's the kingliest of kings, lord of lords. You, you get that, right? The holy of holies. The Song of Songs, it's a book. The songiest of all songs is not as catchy a title, so they call it Song of Songs, right? But it's the same idea, the most holy place. And this is so holy that only one person, that is the high priest, can enter the most holy place, and that is only on one day a year, the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. So do you see the progression of holiness? You had to be holy to enter the courtyard, and, and I could go in, not a big deal. Uh, but the holy place, you've got to be a priest. It's like an extra level of holiness. And then the holy of holies, it's even more so. Now, inside the holy of holies, uh, or first of all, before you can get in the holy of holies, there's a double-thick curtain that blocks your entrance. So no one can go in, no one can see in, you can't peek in, right? Completely blocked off. And inside that holy of holies, instead of an idol, which is what you'd expect in most temples in those days, is the ark. You guys, you guys heard of the ark? know the Ark of the Covenant. Um, Indiana Jones found it like 30 years ago or something like that. Um, Not a recommendation. We don't recommend movies where people's faces melt in church. So, but um, the Ark of the Covenant, it's basically a big gold box that symbolizes God's throne or his footstool on earth. Now, here's what's interesting is on each side of the box are what? Does anybody know? Cherubim. What is it that blocks the people in Eden from the presence of God? Cherubim. But now, just like they had to leave Eden to the east, they enter into the east, progressively get closer to the presence of God, and one representative on behalf of the people can go and stand in there, and God says, and I will meet you between the cherubim. Do you see the connections to Eden? Do you see it? Why? Right? Is that just a cool little tidbit, or is there something more to it? And I think, in the, in the picture, the grand scheme of the Bible, what God is doing is he's showing us the tabernacle is a part of this redemption plan, that God's original intention, that those who were created in his image would live in his presence, in a relationship with him, but because of our rejection of him, we were separated. And the tabernacle is part of this plan to restore us to a right relationship with him. Does that make sense? So the tabernacle, what it just seems like a big tent structure, but really is the place where the people of God encounter the presence of God. Get that? The tabernacle is the place where the people of God encounter the presence of God. Uh, and <clears throat> we're going to skip many years of history here, uh, just, again, for the sake of time. The tabernacle was not the, uh, the long-term plan. Uh, God did tell them that I'm going to give you one place for worship. So as they're wandering in the desert and for hundreds of years, they would have to pack up the tabernacle, carry it, you know, the guys with the, the ark on the poles, you know. Um, I'm sure you can Google it and find some images. Uh, <clears throat> but... Um, Eventually, he provides a place when a man named Solomon becomes king over Israel, and he builds a temple. And so the presence of God shows up. When they, uh, when they finish building the tabernacle, 
uh, this is in Exodus 40, I believe, uh, a cloud comes and descends right over the tabernacle to symbolize the presence of God is here. And you can meet the presence of God at the tabernacle. Now, granted, it is uh, limited, right? It's limited to a place. And it's the, the, the most, for lack of a better term, the highest concentration of God's presence is accessed only by one man one day a year, right? And so, but it's, I mean, it's better than nothing, right? If you have nothing, tabernacle is good. Um, and eventually, though, that tabernacle is replaced by the temple. And we see this in First Kings and the similar thing. They put up the big temple complex under Solomon. A glory cloud comes down from heaven. Everyone falls down. The priests can't do their job. Read the story. It's pretty crazy. People are dancing and everything. Um, and so uh, the temple becomes the replacement. But functionally, for our purposes today, they're the same thing. So I'm probably going to alternate between tabernacle and temple. Either way, the point is, is that is the place where the people of God encounter the presence of God. Is that clear? Three Ps. When I, when I do like a big overview of the Bible teaching, I, I stick on those three Ps for most of the time for that purpose, right? The place where the people of God encounter the presence of God. All right. We're going to focus on two main themes with the tabernacle, and we're going to walk through a little bit of scripture. Um, <clears throat> again, like I said, we could talk about a lot of different things, sacrifice, priesthood, and other things. Uh, the two main themes we're going to talk about are holiness and the presence of God, in case you haven't picked up that term a few times. Uh, holiness. Now, this is a, another, uh, it's another bit of Biblish or Christianese, right? Um, and, and so you, maybe you've heard it, uh, people say like, holiness means to be set apart for God. Have you heard that? Uh, and that's true. Um, sometimes now, I think if you hear sermons, a lot of times holiness is discussed in terms of like it's like a moral category. Like you follow uh, God's will and you're holy. Um, and there's certainly an element to that. But the Bible talks an awful lot about days being holy or an object being holy. Uh, that's not a moral category, correct? But it's something that has been uh, purified, made clean, and is set apart for use for God. Um, and so, in a, and, and this is all rooted, by the way, in God's character. What does he say multiple times in Scripture? Be holy because I am holy, right? So holiness is rooted in the character of God. It is something that is, is other. It is not like what the, what the other nations use for worship. Um, it is something that is set apart for him. Uh, and holiness is necessary uh, to be um, uh, accepted by God. Okay? These are all important themes we're going to time together here in a little bit. Uh, and so that's why somebody had to be made holy before they could enter in the presence of God. Right? So St. Tommy here has to offer up a sacrifice. Super Bowls are not going to count. Um, if I were God, they would, but it, they don't. Um, and so holiness, it, holiness is, is what they're called to be. They are called to be set apart. They are called to be different. They are called to reflect the character of God. And like I said, in order to enter the presence of God, you have to be made holy. Uh, and so God's presence, as we mentioned, is, is like this cloud over the tabernacle. Um, and because they're holy, they can enter his presence. And as I mentioned, the presence of God is not constant. It's not fully accessible. There are barriers, but it's there. Okay. Now we see these two themes, holiness and presence, crop up a lot throughout the Old Testament. I encourage you, as you're reading through... Uh, um, re- reading through the Old Testament especially, I mean, including the New Testament, we'll get there, uh, just make note, right? When Isaiah is brought into this vision of the throne room of God, what do the creatures around God chant? Holy, 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 right? 
And then what does Isaiah say? He's like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, I'm not clean. You guys remember this? Isaiah 6. Check it out on your own. It's rad. Okay. Uh, But we'll remember um, that God's plan, going back to Genesis 1, uh, was for his people reflecting his image, representing him on this earth, uh, to fill the earth, right? He wanted his image bearers to fill this earth as his representatives. The tabernacle or the temple doesn't fully get us there, right? It's a, it's a stop. It is a, an important stop, but it is a stop on the plan of God, okay? Are we, you're tracking with me? More or less, right? You awake? Anyone else stay up too late last night? Okay. All right, me too. Not my fault. Okay, so John 1. <laughs> John 1. Can we put that up on the screen? Uh, I love the Gospel of John. Here's a, a, a couple snippets. Um, in the beginning was the Word. Uh, the Word is Jesus, by the way, in this chapter, in case you didn't know. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. All right, so this is a classic verse of what's called the incarnation. You guys ever heard that term? Uh, It just literally means like in the fleshness, right? Like God becomes man. Jesus becomes a human. Uh, And I underline, you'll see this this word, made his dwelling. Uh, And why? Why did I underline this? Uh, It's very interesting because there are other words that John could use to talk about somebody dwelling or living uh, in uh, John 15, abide in me and I will abide in you is one word. But he doesn't use that word here. He actually uses the word for tabernacle. He, 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 he verbs a noun, right? And so he, he literally could be translated, the word became flesh and tabernacled among his people. Now, why that word? Of all the words he could have chosen, he chose a weird one, right? I mean, if somebody said that to you, where are you tabernacling, Right? Yeah, you would do that, right? But he chose it. Jesus tabernacled among us. Why did he choose that? Because in Jesus now, there's a shift, right? There's a shift. Um, Paul says it in Colossians that the fullness of deity dwells in him. Remember we talked about those three Ps, the place where the people of God encounter the presence of God. Well, that is now focused in Jesus, Jesus, if I can put it this way, is the place where the presence of God encounters the people of God. I switched it by accident. You know what I'm trying to say. The place where the people of God encounter the presence of God. In Jesus. He even refers to himself on a couple of occasions as the temple. You guys remember this? And and, and, and that takes some audacity when they actually have a temple that they are using for worship. And Jesus is like, actually, I'm the temple. Right? I am the place where the people of God are going to encounter the presence of God. This is a radical departure from the Old Testament. Remember, if somebody wants, uh, uh, people have to come to the tabernacle or to the temple, they have to make a sacrifice in order to be made holy. Because remember, in, in, in the Old Testament, uh, holiness doesn't really spread. It's, it's impurity, right? So if you're a priest... Uh, and you, you, are, you have been purified, you've been made holy, so you could go into the temple, and you encounter something dead, you better not touch it. Because if you touch it, your holiness doesn't spread. It's the impurity of the dead thing, right? This is why I think in the, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, where the man was beaten and he was left for dead, and the priest walks by and doesn't help him, right? Because his purity is more important to him than helping this person, which you, you know what Jesus says about that. Um, 
But that's the mentality. But this is what's so interesting. Jesus, the temple, who tabernacled among humanity, they don't, uh, he goes to them. Right? Do you see the difference? They don't have to come and offer up a sacrifice in order to come to him. Jesus goes. He says, I come to seek and save the lost. Right? And so if you think about this for a second, um, uh, different people who are uh, what we might call impure like in, a, in, in a biblical terminology uh, because of their sin perhaps, right? Uh, people, a woman caught in adultery. Zacchaeus, who's ripping off people, taking advantage of his position to rob from the poor. Uh, people who are impure because of no fault of their own. The woman who was bleeding for, was it 12 years? Is that right? Uh, lepers, right? Leprosy is contagious. I mean, in our day, we have cures for these things, but they didn't. And yet, what does Jesus do when he encounters these people? Does he say, go offer a sacrifice? Go spend a week sprinkling blood on your head. Does he say these things to them? I mean, a man with a withered hand, right, who would not be allowed in the temple because he's impure, he's imperfect, and he can't access the presence of God. And what does Jesus do? Do you see, he heals these people. He encounters this woman who touches him, who's been bleeding for 12 years. This is Mark 5. Go check it out. He's bleeding for 12 years. By all rights, he should be now made impure, but he's not. What happens? She's healed. So do you see what we're talking about here? Uh, In Jesus, holiness is contagious. He does not bring on the impurities. He carries and passes on holiness. They can now be in the presence of God. Why? Because he made them holy. You guys track? I mean, this is, a, this is a radical departure. They no longer have to enter the temple and do all these sacrifices. Jesus will be the one to make them holy. And so, uh, and, and, and not only that, we see... Um, at Jesus' death, uh, you'll remember we talked about in the blocking off the holy of holies, right? So separating people from the presence of God. They have this big, thick curtain. You guys remember this? And in Matthew, I think it's 27. We have this up on the screen, I believe. Uh, when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. So this is when he died. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, right? So another signal that the old order, the temple system that they all knew was over. It was done with. But more than that, it's not just a symbol of that. It's showing us that God's presence has now been made loose on the earth. It is now available far beyond what they ever thought. Do you guys see that? Instead of it being blocked, instead of you have to going through all this, uh, all these different types of sacrifices, and only one man could enter the holy of holies at one day of year, the, the the curtain has been torn, and the presence of God is let loose. Right now, we still need to be made holy, but Jesus takes care of that. Right, and this is where again, if we had more time, we can get into Hebrews. Jesus, the perfect ultimate sacrifice. On behalf of his people. Again, I I recommend, listen to the Passover sermon from John. Uh, Jesus is the perfect sacrifice one time for all of us. And we are made holy so that we can come in the presence of God. Now, can we fast forward to the end of the story and then we'll circle back? Is that cool? Uh, Revelation chapters 21 and 22 kind of tell the end of the story. 
Uh, Revelation is hard. Anybody ever been confused reading Revelation? Yes, okay. If you didn't raise your hand, you're a liar. But I saw you nod your head, so you're okay. Um, it, it, is, it is confusing. Um, but it's, it's interesting, despite all the imagery and sometimes the symbolic stuff and you're trying to figure it out, oftentimes the point is actually really, really clear if you just kind of slow down and think about it. Uh, yeah, so Revelation 21, thank you. So John sees this vision of the city and, and God coming down to earth, which I find fascinating that the end result is God coming here. Uh, just shift your eschatology a little bit. Okay, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. You wanna do the next one? I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Okay, go back to the slide right before that, 21.3. You see I did the underlining thing. You already know where this is going, right? It literally, you could translate it, God's tabernacle is now among the people, and he will tabernacle with them. Same thing as before. Why that word? So many other words you can choose, but John chose this one. Because this is the thing that I think is sometimes hard for us when, when we, we read the Old Testament and we see this stuff about all these rules about the tabernacle. And there's so many details about the different pieces of furniture in the tabernacle. But here's the thing. The tabernacle is essentially, it's prophetic. It's prophetic in the sense that it points towards something else. The tabernacle points us towards something that is greater to come. It reminds us that there really will be a place where the people of God encounter the presence of God in its fullness, undiluted, unfiltered, no barriers. In the next chapter of Revelation, it says that we will see his face, right? And in a day before Skype or FaceTime, we will see his face meant you are with the person. And we will actually live out what the tabernacle pointed to, that we will live in the presence of God fully, day in and day out, for all of eternity. And the coming of Jesus, again, points us to that. It's, I mean, Jesus ushering in the kingdom of God, but it's not done yet. It's not done yet. Jesus started a mission. Maybe started is the wrong word. Started way back when. He is the focal point of the mission of God restoring his, us to his original plan. So the question is, what does it have to do with us, right? Because we are in between Jesus and Revelation, true? Between the first coming and the second coming. Jesus has not showed up yet, as far as I know. Uh, and so what do we do? What does, this have to, what does this have to do with us? So I want to, uh, keeping these two themes in mind, holiness and presence. Uh, multiple times in the New Testament, uh, the people of God, or sometimes what we'll call the church, um, are called the temple. And again, I'll encourage you, uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 6, there's a few places like that that talk about this. Um, and this is oftentimes connected to the ho- holiness. Uh, have you ever noticed, and, and depending on your translation, uh, in the letters, oftentimes the churches are referred to the saints. They're called the saints or the holy ones. You guys ever noticed this? Um, and, and saint is a funny word, like Saint Tommy. Like we put this on a s- certain category of people, right? And, and but biblically speaking, if you are in Christ, if you have faith in Christ, you are a saint. You are a holy one. You have been made holy. 
Um, and so uh, in the New Testament, we are the holy temple of God. Now, do you feel like the holy temple of God? I often do not, right? And I say we, I don't mean just Antioch, right? I like this church, but we're, we're kind of small time, right? Uh, and the grand scheme of the people of God through all the ages, through all the world, uh, we're talking big picture. But we here are still a collection of holy ones. We are a temple. We are, we are tabernacling on this earth, right? And so I don't feel holy a lot, okay? And I'm going to guess. I won't make you raise your hand. I'm going to guess a lot of you don't. Like you don't, you don't sit around thinking, today is a holy day. I am holy, right? If, has anyone ever, if somebody asks you, hey, how are you doing today? I'm feeling holy, <laughs> right? Nobody? Okay. Can we have a volunteer to do that this week? Just say that to people. Anybody? Nobody? Josh Buckner, come on, bro. Raise your hand. That'd be great. Report back next week how it goes. We'll see. Uh, like, day four of the holiness experiment. I have no more friends, you know. <laughs> um, but this is what I, what I love about truth with a capital T. Whether or not I feel holy... I have been made holy. You guys track with this? Whether or not I feel it, I have been made holy. I have been made acceptable in the presence of God. Not because of anything I have done, I can promise you. But because of what has been done on my behalf. And because I identify with Christ, I trust in Him, I place my faith in Him, I am now acceptable in the eyes of God. Full stop. And now I have access to the presence of God. Right? What was symbolized in that veil being torn, that curtain being torn in the temple, is actually true of us. That when we gather and we worship and we're praying and we're encouraging each other, when we're rebuking each other, all these different things that the church does, whether or not we feel it, we carry with us the presence of God. But uh, on, on, we also carry with us uh, the mission of Jesus. And so I want to uh, go back to this point. On this side of Jesus' first coming, we carry on his mission. Remember what I said about Jesus? Uh, he is the temple, right? The place where the people of God encounter the presence of God. But he goes. He goes out and he finds the people and he brings healing. He brings life. He brings forgiveness. He brings acceptance. And you can put up the acts. And this is why I think, uh, this is oftentimes overlooked. Uh, you will receive power. This is Jesus talking to his disciples right before he ascends up to heaven. Uh, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You'll notice what Jesus is doing. He's saying, I'm going to give my people my presence, and you will go. Right? We're not blessed with the presence of God so that you and I can have a really cool Sunday morning worship time or a powerful quiet time or something like that. Those are great. That's part of the filling up. But if this is the limit of what we do, if we just aim to have a really cool 90 minutes on Sunday morning, we are selling short what it means to be filled with the presence of God. Jesus gives us his presence and he says, go. He says, go. And I wonder how many of us have Friends and family, neighbors, coworkers who are broken, 
who are hurting, whether it's because of something they've done or something that was done to them. And if you were to ask them, and if they were honest, they would say, man, I I don't know about this God thing, but I don't even think he would want me. And we can go just like Jesus did. And we can bring words of life. We can bring the gospel to them. Why? Because he gives us his presence to make us able to do it. We can spread holiness. We can spread this acceptability before God, not because we're special, but because we've been empowered to do so. So the tabernacle is not just a tent. It's a reminder of who we were created to be, that we carry with us the presence of God everywhere we go. And so as the Phil and the, the group comes up here, a couple things um, as I was praying about this, one is, uh, some of you in this room, you might be thinking, uh, well, I know people <laughs> who, who could use this message, who could use this truth. What, what would change in your life or in your workplace, in your family, in your neighborhood? What would change if you were aware every day that you carry with you the presence of God? What people around you could have their lives changed if you introduce them to the presence of God. Not because you're special, but because God has empowered you to do so. So that's one thing I just want to encourage you. And the other thing, as I was, uh, we were worshiping, I was praying. Um, Lord, help us. Uh, I think there are probably some people here this morning, um, <laughs> when we talk about the, the holiness thing, you're saying, okay, I hear you. We've been made holy. God sees us as holy. Uh, but I don't feel holy. (laughs) You don't know my story. You don't know my junk. You don't know my sin. You don't know what has happened to me. Uh, And so I'm not, you know, we're not going to make you raise a hand or anything, Um, but I know that we're going to have people up here who can pray with you, or if you prefer, grab somebody near you that you know and just say, will you pray with me? And I I want you, you know, I don't believe in magic words that make the bad feelings go away. There's no abracadabra here. We have something better, though. We have an eternal truth from God. That in Christ, by virtue of your faith in Christ, you have been made holy. Whatever junk is in the past, or if I may be so bold, whatever junk is happening now, God looks at you and he sees you as a holy son or holy daughter. And so uh, find someone and ask them to pray those words over you. And I just want to encourage you to receive it.